I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a mini episode where we take a slightly shorter dive into an also increasingly shallow amount of topics. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I am your other host, Emily Beijen. And today for our little mini, Emily and I are going to review, talk about I don't know, process out loud, the HBO Max documentary Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. If you can ignore the fact that it's produced by Bill Simmons, I think it's worth a watch. I had a good time. I know we both watched this independently without the intention of recording anything about it, at least not initially. It wasn't until you and I started talking about the docs. We are like, oh, mini episode idea. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right. Like it was just like, oh, we'll definitely watch this because we we both we heard about this series coming out on HBO Max with all these uh, Bill Simmons produced documentaries. But yeah, as soon as we started watching, I I think I watched it after you. I started texting you. I was like, holy fucking shit! It was clear we had to do a mini episode on this. So in case you haven't heard of this documentary, I am going to read the summary that is posted on HBO.com. Unfolding over three days of intense heat and nonstop performances, Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage examines how the festival eventually collapsed under the weight of its own misguided ambition and resulted in a grim outcome, earning the event the infamous distinction of, quote, the day the 90s died. The documentary focuses a spotlight on American youth at the end of the millennium in the shadow of Columbine and the looming hysteria of Y2K, pinpointing a moment in time when the angst of a generation galvanized into a seismic cultural shift. Such to the soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands and some rap and DJs because we have fucking Moby in this. The film also reappraises the 1960s mythos, revealing hard truths about the dangers of the rose tinted nostalgia in the age of commercialism and bottom line profits. Um, I would say some of the other music docs that are going to come out of this music box series, though, sound incredible. We have Jagged, which is about Atlantis Morissette and Jagged Little Pill. There's an untitled DMX movie that follows him in like his 
at the final years of his life, which looks so good. There's also a Kenny G, which just just fascinating. Just this curly haired man playing not a clarinet, but I always call it a clarinet. Alto Um, sax. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then Mr. Saturday Night about Robert Stigwood, who created the disco era, essentially. So there are a bunch of good ones to come, but we are going to focus on this one, which we've kind of covered in some aspects yeah. what this documentary covers, which are honestly the parts that I liked the least, right? Like I right. didn't care about the Y2K stuff. We had, we did a whole Y2K episode, but even before that, what yeah. I didn't understand sometimes yeah. what this documentary was doing, who is this documentary for? Like, who do you think is going to watch it? Because if you think anybody under the age of 35 doesn't understand, that's going to watch this, doesn't understand the cultural context, like you're kind of like talking down to your audience a little bit. And then the people who live through it, they also clearly remember. It is interesting. I will say this, and we've talked about it before, is that the difference between our generation and our knowledge of like previous generations' music history um, can be attributed to things like, I love the 80s, I love the 90s. Like, I think yes. that there's so many pop culture touchstones that even if we ourselves didn't live through them because we are not Gen X or older, uh, we fully understand the magnitude of the way that I don't think Gen Z quite understands. So I, I do wonder if this is who they were trying to target ultimately by bringing up all these other like pop culture, historic events happening simultaneously. But on the other hand, I also feel like would Gen X or sorry, Gen Z be even interested in this documentary. Right. Yeah. I think you, you bring up a very valid point. I think, you know, just to sort of get the negatives off the top after um, saying that I really enjoyed this, I would have liked to have seen a more close parallel uh, with Woodstock 69 to 99 Mm -hmm. because they both sort of have some interesting parallels that we have since romanticized from the sixties, but we didn't do that in the nineties. And I kind of wanted some more of that versus like, oh, and then we were moving away from CDs because of Napster. I'm like, do you think any fucking Gen Z person gives a shit about (laughs) fucking Napster? Move on. Like, yes, we all remember Napster. We all illegally downloaded stuff, which by the way, I think my absolute favorite moment was Dave Mustaine being like, yeah, does Lars need more money? I don't know. He's I'm not gonna he's like I'm not gonna call him an asshole, but he's kind of an asshole, right? And then he just cackles. It was so good. Mustaine, 40 years later, still so salty about everything and ready to shit on Metallica (laughs) whenever, whenever, be it the behind the music on Megadeth or Metallica. It's specifically Lars. He just shits on Lars. Anytime somebody turns a camera on him, he's like, Have I told you that I hate fucking Lars Ulrich? (laughs) <laughs> Which I can appreciate, like, of all oh. the members, sure. But all like- of us should. <laughs> like, I feel like he just collectively gets he gets shat on and he fucking deserves it because he's I- just a dick. But <laughs> oh I found God. that to, I howled at that. And then the other moment with um, Dexter and Noodles from The Offspring where oh, Noodles yeah. was like, yeah, we p- we played a place in Germany that was like built by Nazis and that felt more welcoming than Woodstock 99. <laughs> and then they both looked at each other and then cackled as well. I'm just like, oh my God, these guys are all losing it. They're like, oh, I get to dump on something. Can't wait. I got all these jokes been waiting. It is. That was probably one of the highlights of that documentary, not in a great way, but in, in, in giving you context of just how horribly organized 
this was and how shitty of a venue. And I think I didn't quite realize. I knew it had been in Rome because I, I drove a lot. Rome, New York. Rome, New York. Sorry. Should clarify the other Rome. Um, no, not that Rome. <laughs> not that Rome. Not Rome by the B-52s, but Rome, New York. Oh my god. I, I drove a lot through upstate New York as a kid going up to Vermont, um, where I spent part of my summer. So I was very familiar with like Bethel, where the original Woodstock was, mm-hmm. and various other things like that. Um, I just didn't realize it was on a former uh Air Force space, um, where people that were was just, an like, interesting wrinkle, huh? Asphalt. Like that's that's like so not a welcoming vibe. <laughs> It Not feels more, <laughs> I mean, honestly, when they first started showing shots of the Air Force Base that they would turn into Woodstock, I was like, this looks like a set from The Walking Dead. Yes. This looks like a prison they have to clear in order to make it habitable in the apocalypse. And instead, but, they filled it with 400,000 drunk high 20 Okay, so I think that's the thing that really took me aback, that I really wish they did maybe a little bit more comparison to like other festivals 350,000 400,000 people is fucking crazy like I don't even think no like Coachella doesn't even know get that insane that to me that right there is like the entire problem that you're about to have I mean fuck all the like the logistics obviously were trash like just getting any old white guy to be security quote unquote all they had to do was like essentially pass like what you know when you have too many points in your driver's license and you have to go to driver school and there's yeah. like some improv person trying to teach you how to like be a better driver <laughs> that's where those people went they went to like hollywood driving and security school and they passed a written test after 45 seconds and then they just fucked off on their job they only had one earnest security guard who was like yeah it was bad like almost immediately which was every single person's reaction except the two absolutely psychotic festival promoter oh my guys. God. Michael Lang and John Schur. Like, go fuck yourself. My God. I was just floored. And I was like, man, this can't get any worse. And and, and then it does. <laughs> it really does. They really like continue to dig the hole that they have, you know, put themselves in. And it's just a shithole. It's a dug up. They've dug the hole filled it with all the shit from the porto potties from Woodstock 99 and then they just keep digging and filling it with more shit like that's how it felt oh, every yeah. time they were on screen you're like wow a different circle of hell i thought we had already passed on the way down i mean it's like first i don't even first they have i guess semi decent intentions but as it goes on and things start to backfire it's like okay instead of like listening to people let's attack journalists okay let's blame women for being sexually assaulted okay let's blame fred, fred durst, durst for the porta potties which are you know sort of like at the crux of the angst of some of this stuff let's blame like the idea that you could even give fred durst that much power is fucking crazy to me I, <laughs> like, yes just, i'm sorry is no. not the problem and then no. that weird baby-faced man whose idea it was to put on woodstock that man is so unsettling no it is very unsettling i and what was i think you're right giving fred durst that much power is really the problem here and it i mean that's a constant <laughs> The constant theme of 1999, though, really is giving giving Fred Durst too much power power because we gave him too much power on MTV. We gave him too much power in so many other ways. And then also, like, it was, you know, Limp Bizkit and a bunch of other bands that were blamed for, like, Columbine and stuff. We ultimately were giving these bands 
way too much power in actually thinking that they're the ones who are going to shape the youth. I mean, it's its own version of satanic panic from the like late 90s at that point. Yeah, except it's panic over like, honestly, shitty rap rock. And I yes. say that as somebody who owned not not both Limp Bizkit albums, a, multiple Korn albums. I mean, let's just talk about this lineup to sort of set the stage, so to speak. <laughs> On Friday, who would we... Oh my God, Mo makes a comeback. Because if, yeah. if you could cast your mind back to January 2020... Uh, back when we had no I no reason to believe anything wouldn't go our way. Uh, we did a Coachella 99 lineup versus the lineup that I don't even know what Coachella's lineup is going to fucking look like or yeah. if they're even going to do it next year. Like that's just its own separate mess. But we were highlighting sort of like the differences between the two. And Mo, M-O-E period, comes up on both fucking lineups I, and here at Woodstock 99. People love jam bands, man. There are so many jam bands on this lineup or jam band adjacent bands on well, here. Well, G-Love and Special Sauce, yeah. definitely yeah. that. But I mean, we've which, got Lit on Friday, yes. which another band whose album I owned. Buck, Buck Cherry, which is also <laughs> crazy. That's, That's what we what? call butt rock. That They're like prototype <laughs> butt rock. Like they're a pre- Nickelback, in my opinion. Oh, butt rock. Well, I mean, I guess yeah. that falls in line with the creed of it all here as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Creed's definitely prototype butt rock too, in this sense. Like, there's a lot of this here that gives way to like Nickelback, Hinder, like all these bands in the mid Hinder, mid 2000s. Get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> on the lips of an well, angel. Well, we've got live as well. Speaking of more butt yes. rock, as That's as I continue to rock. use, yeah, use the phrase, I feel more comfortable with it. We also got the roots, insane clown posse, who are retiring soon. George Clinton and the people. Yeah, did you not hear that? I think it's no. like Crazy oh J or Homicidal oh. J or whatever. You mean Violent J and Shaggy Violent J. <laughs> Shaggy Too Dope. Why do I know this? Why do I know this? <laughs> For the same reason that I kept like recalling like the dumbest pop culture shit, but could not do a math problem to save my <laughs> life. <laughs> We have the same brain worms, you know? That's why we have this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, Violent J. Don't love that name. He's got, like, heart stuff. And so he's retiring from tour life. So I think they're doing their last gathering of the Juggalos this year or something. Oh, God. But don't don't quote me. I'm not a Juggalo spokesperson. You mean a, a Juggalette? <laughs> yes. My husband just told me this information in passing because he's like, yeah, you, you want to know stuff about pop culture? It's like... Not that. Don't please don't tell me stuff like this. Anyway, uh, we also have Offspring, Corn, Bush, Cheryl Crow. They talk about this a lot about how there is a token woman on each day of the lineup, and it's Cheryl Crow, Jewel, and Atlantis Morissette are the yeah. token women that are spread out on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The DMX sequence. Can we talk about that? Like, yes. Seeing a so lot of an, white people. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I mean, an abs- It was. Actually, incredibly disturbing to watch. It was like it's like worse than watching like old footage, old in quotes footage of like a clan meeting. DMX is singing. I fuck. I'm blanking on the song, but when he holds out the mic for the chorus, which in which he raps the N word, a sea of white people (laughs) shout it back. And of course, you know it's DMX. It is you know slightly elevated rap like he's rapping about like real shit like sad shit angry shit and he like really i mean these are things that have happened to him so he's very like emotional it's part of why we loved loved dmx 
may he rest. But he is holding out the mic and he's like, you know, one of the five black people who will be performing today and a sea of white people, a sea of like white college kids. There's something about that that's kind of like terrifying too. all feeling so comfortable. 100%. And I mean, and like, let's talk about the 400,000 people who are, let's just say 250,000 of them are white people screaming the N-word all in unison at this concert. It's just like, I... Mm. In 1999, like it wasn't that was it was like 20 fucking years ago. That that's not very long. Like the fact that I'm, I guess, as a white person, it is my privilege to be shocked by an image like that. But it's also like baseline, very disturbing. And it's not like it, I haven't seen that shit before. Like I remember very clearly being at a Jay Z show and just a group like of 15 wasted as fuck frat boys with their like flipped up polos like screaming the n-word i was just like i gotta walk away from i can't be anywhere near this like i don't like it and like if it was that magnified times one million so um that was truly one of the most disturbing scenes i mean obviously apart from all the sexual assault which was like the casual sexual assault just so casual and they all tried to blame it on Girls Gone Wild. And once again, to give Joe Francis any credit at all is, no. and especially this much power in the conversation, is bananas. Absolutely bananas. And I think what what kind of saddens me the most is just how, yeah, how trivialized it was. Like how mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, you hear these heartbreaking things like they interviewed that guy who was a an EMT at the time and is now, <gasps> and he's talking guy, about- Wait, the guy who called it a worse disaster than Katrina? There was, I think there was him or there was one guy who told the story about, you know, a woman wearing uh, like another man, another EMT's clothes. It was that guy. It was the disaster guy who was like, I've been an EMT. And he said it was like worse than Katrina and worse than a different terrible hurricane. Yeah. And that was like, for me, I think I, I remember hearing like how bad this was because like I've told you this story. I was at summer camp that summer of Woodstock 99 at, in, um, in in Quebec because my dad wanted us to get in touch with our French Canadian roots. And um, one of our counselors went for the week and came back um, after that weekend and like was just like, yeah, I mean, it was fun, but there was no water. It was terrible peeing everywhere. And like, I remember her with her like French Canadian accent, like show us your teats, like this was, and it, it's amazing how like 11 year old Emily uh, remembers, like 33 year old Emily remembers this 22 years later. That this, and, and watching the doc like just confirmed it because that was just the constant thing that was being chanted by these douchebags if they weren't chanting the N word or something like that. Like it was just the amount of white male you know the song like melissa villa senor sings in uh snl about white male rage like this encapsulates that it was i think i knew that it was bad i just this footage the way you know you see just how bad it was and what was just like casually passed on as boys being boys was fucking outrageous I mean, boys being boys, they literally ripped down a whole fucking wall. Yes. They destroyed porta potties. I mean, speaking of, you know, $8 water or whatever, they op- they pried open, open food supply trucks, emptied yes. them out, and then burned everything inside. And then they cut to that interview with one of the guys that was like maybe part of like a group of friends, I forget, which let's talk about that one group of friends that lost their friend and they had, that, oh they had all those ominous diary entries. We can talk about that in a second. 
But that one white guy who was like, yeah, I was like really surprised at myself that I really could just like feel all of this rage and anger. And I just started smashing things and I started just like lighting a fire. And if I saw oh a photo God. of myself, I would be like, that's not me. And how many fucking men have said that about casually sexually assaulting a woman or just doing anything like that's some destructive? Sort of existential, like out of body experience. I'm like. Yeah, you say that when you're like at a concert or something weird happens. Not or when if you're, you're like high. To, or you're high. <laughs> you don't say that to fucking justify destruction of property or raping yeah. someone. Like, what the fuck? I mean, there were some dudes that seemed downright terrifying. And like you were saying, I mean, not directly to your camp counselor, but about the guys saying, show us your tits that were like a, literally a wall of men sitting up there and just chanting at every single woman who walked by. And yes, it was this pseudo third wave feminism of like, I mean, I hate to use this phrase that we were just uh, bemoaning <laughs> before we started recording, but like my body, my choice. If I want my tits out, like that's my prerogative, blah, blah, blah. I just wish that everybody used enough sunscreen, but very clearly they did not because there were some sunburns. But, oh, yeah. But we're in this like pseudo third wave feminism and these men are behaving like absolute monsters. And as somebody points out, they're like, this is like the first generation of men who were raised by single working moms. Like, yeah. you know, they should be or should have more respect and like would generally have perhaps it was a very Lord of the Flies. I think it was like some mob hive brain mentality that like makes you forget that like women are people or something, or maybe there, that's just how men always are. There is something interesting about that. You bring this up. You brought up that point that that part in the documentary where they talked about, yeah, the first generation of men raised by working mothers and that kind of thing. And mothers who are feminists. And it's interesting because we're talking about a spectrum of Gen X, you know, which was Woodstock 92 and like very pure Gen X. And then mm-hmm. and then Woodstock 99 being the tail end of Gen X, and then the beginning of millennials or what they call like exennials. Like there's this, it's an interesting thing because Woodstock 99 kind of covers two different generations, like the tail end of Gen X and then the beginning of Gen Y. It was so interesting to see footage from Woodstock 92. I feel so disconnected from just Woodstock stuff in general, just because it was not anything my parents attended or cared about, or it's maybe it was like also regional, but it was not something that I was like overly familiar with other than like, Oh, it's a music festival. Like, you know, super basic shit, but Woodstock 92 seemed quite nice. Like, but also I think. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I think 
the venue is really what set like the tone. Totally. I don't think, and I hate to be that person, but I don't think that like an army base has the same good vibes as like a grassy field. Yeah. You know, they want to chalk it up to like it just being, I mean, I think it is obviously a generational divide in some ways, but in other ways, I feel like it was just set up completely different. And I don't understand, I mean, other than money, what the motivation was to comp- to do things honestly completely opposite than what you guys have ever done. Like the lineup is completely different. Like they, they created the environment with like really aggressive quote unquote bands. Like we've got like Olympus Biscuit and corn and like really like deep in your feelings. I mean, we also have fucking Aerosmith. So that's pretty mainstream. And you've got like James Brown, which was truly shocking to see. I was like, what? He agreed to do this. <laughs> I, yeah. Did there not was, understand that, but they kept bringing that up. And I know James Brand didn't pr- pr- uh, perform at Woodstock, but they brought that up a lot. That there was this emphasis on trying oh, yes. to connect um, Woodstock '69 to Woodstock '99. So, um, I which band brought on one of the members of the Doors? I'm trying. It to was remember. Bush. Bush. It was Bush on, yeah. because I think they cut to someone from Bush Krieger. being like. They were like, we were so disappointed that like nobody knew. Oh, and then Creed. I believe, yeah, it was Creed. Creed. Okay, and then. I believe it was Wyclef Jean, also a strange choice for Woodstock 99, just saying. And he set his guitar on fire like Jimi Hendrix did at Woodstock 69. And all these kids were like, whatever, don't care. <laughs> like, I think one of the white guys that they interviewed was like, yeah, I had no idea who the fuck Robbie Krieger was. And like, I didn't really give a shit. I just wanted them to like play some music. And I think another thing that they did that was I mean, I understand that Bonnaroo does something to this extent, but Woodstock 99 went 24 hours a day. Yeah, which is wild. Like, there is something, there is a level of this where I think if you're going to attempt to do that, there's a reason why Coachella has continued on, you know, 20 plus years later uh, and Woodstock has not. And that is just, you know, pure organization. And, And they talk about this in the doc too, is just like, the contrast in levels of organization with like Coachella deciding to do it in Indio, the decision to do it in a field, like all these, all these th- decisions were made. Um, and from a logistics standpoint, yeah, they might even do a 24 hour show almost, but it's, it's, it's understood that like things wind down, you're, you're going to stick to maybe one stage at one point. And like, there's just a, so much more, thought put into this versus like I think what's interesting to me is the number of people who organized Woodstock 99 that were just volunteers just like pick up someone off the side of the road oh guess you can be a person in charge of security (laughs) 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 I mean thank god they actually had like real EMTs and real medics because I mean they're like you said they're on asphalt they're on concrete and it is over 100 degrees every single day. There's no fucking shade. Like, put up a pop tent for crying out loud. And so it really is a miracle that they had real EMTs because people were having heat stroke, which I also didn't know that you could get so hot you get hypothermia, which was very that interesting. was one that interested me a lot as well. I was super shocked because I, I like, could not believe that that was a thing. I knew, you know, I, my assumption was if not hypothermia when you're cold, then heat stroke when you're hot. But yeah. Same. Yeah, because, well, like we were, like I had mentioned a little bit ago, there's this, there are lots of elements to this documentary. So it is dynamic, which I really appreciate. It's not just like a bunch of talking heads. They have like a good mixture of all different kinds of stories happening. But they have this one 
well, there are a couple of tragedy storylines, but they have like one where they actually have the friends that were a part of this group that all went to Woodstock 99 together, you know, post-college, whatever. And they went with a friend who, I mean, and you have to camp there and you have to, like, where were they camping? Like, where was their grass to camp? Like, it just, everything looked so hard and uncomfortable and hot and shitty and your fucking hot ass tent that has no shade all day that you go and sleep in and then you have people who are like super fucked up banging on trash cans all night anyway they have they travel with a friend who keeps a diary talking and they have someone in voiceover reading his entries talking about what shows he saw whatever at some point they get separated from him because he wants to see metallica and he wants to get to the front to watch them and you know, in a sea of 400,000 fucking people, which is crazy, 400,000 people pre-cell phones. And the way that you could find somebody, which I, I thought was like cute maybe like in theory, but like in practice would probably give me so much anxiety. There's like a, a people matcher finder misconnections wall where you leave notes for your friends because there's so many fucking people. You don't, you can't find them on your own. You have to like meet up at this designated area like you're in Disneyland and you're a lost seven-year-old. Do you know the scene in The Lion King where these there's the antelope stampede? <laughs> that is what I felt as I was watching this happen and imagining what it would be like to lose someone without a cell phone in yeah in pre-cell phone times in a 400,000 person open fucking field open um former air force base like former, so yes, much worse yeah. field Although, like at gen- least yeah. in a I was going to say, at least in a field, like slightly pleasant, but it's the sea, it's the sea of people. 400,000 people is literally unfucking manageable. That's, that's a, that's a city. Like you guys can't, you guys didn't build a functional city. This isn't Sims. But anyway, they lose their friend. He gets caught in Metallica. He gets hypothermia. When he goes to the nurse's station, they misdiagnose what's wrong with him. And they use, they think he has like a heart attack or is having a heat stroke or something. And so they use the paddles on him and that actually gives him a heart attack and he dies. And his friends can't find him for like a day and a half, which like hearing them talk about it. And then when that guy started crying, I started crying. Like this is like your worst know, fucking nightmare. And they find out dude is dead and then they're like we have to call his parents it's just like this is awful i like worst weekend i i don't even know it was just terrible how do you come back from that like survivor guilt like all these things um i just and and you know deep down we as an audience watching this know that this is you can't blame it on a bunch of kids like they had they had no idea what was going to happen um, it was then, the just dis- I blame the organizers who were so disorganized that people don't even have the time because there are so many there are people getting sexually assaulted left and right. There are people who have actual heat stroke. Like they're spread and stretched so fucking thin they don't have the time or the support or the resources to even ask this man a question to diagnose him properly. When, and that's on the organizers. That's not I mean it's on it's on some of the nurses, but it's mostly on the org it's mostly on the organizers completely. And that's where the contract with continuing, you know, to splice the interviews with the organizers, um, Michael. Lee oh my God, Asher. these two I tone mean, deaf assholes. I couldn't believe it. You're just hearing these heartbreaking stories about sexual assault and women just being, you know, groped and and just like molested and just all these horrible things. And then they, you just cut to John Sherry's just been like, yeah, these women could have kept their shirts on. Like they could have done this. They could have done that. Like basically uh, using, you know, she was asking for it. And that was just 
unbelievable. Like I just, even watching like the Firefest documentary, at least they could own these idiots, like could own up to, you know, Billy, whatever, Billy McFarlane could at least own up to the fact that he had some fault. And I'm not saying Firefest did not have sexual assault that I know of and like the level of destruction and all that. But I, he could at least own up to some some bit of fault, despite him being a shit person. Like here, the fact that they neither organizer would own up to a single thing being their fault was the absolute most shocking part of this, especially 20 plus years later. I mean, the delusion on yes. the both of them to yes. think that they could blame women for their own sexual assault, which the woman who went to Woodstock 99 who left early and then started that like anonymous yeah. online tip. Like, oh, my God, she broke. I mean, she like I, I she broke my heart just yeah. the way that she had described all of her interactions with people afterwards was just it was. Yeah. I mean, it was so caring and sweet of her to to do this, but it's also just so sad and it was terrible. And it's like so much. And you know, she highlights like how many people didn't even report anything. And the fact that she is the one who did this, took it in her own, you know, took it in her own hands to do that and not an organizer or anyone official with the actual festival. Not that I expect them to because they've shown their true colors and their assholes, but like, yeah, I mean, to believe you know that I mean? this, to believe that this walking, fucking, talking, toilet scrubber has the yeah. audacity to blame other women. I mean, he blamed journalists. He blamed MTV people that they yes. actually wanted to be there as if they weren't trying to fucking monetize this fucking thing yes. through and through for every goddamn dollar they could get. Why else would you price water for fucking dollars and then not give anybody actual water? And then they're talking oh about this trough that people were like bathing yeah. in. I was disgusted. disgusted. I mean, people were bathing, pissing in it. Like, what you expect people to actually want to fill their water bottles with like, you know, water that is contaminated and could potentially give them some sort of an infection. Like I was just, I, in my twenties, I put up with a lot of shit, you know, like you put, you put up with things and you, they're, they're like things that I would never do now as an, as a 30 something. Like I don't see myself going to a music festival where I camp out. Like, I just don't think it's in the cards for me anymore. And that's okay. But to see <laughs> the level of what these 20 somethings were dealing with, like, I just, I mean, this was, I'd never seen anything like this. No, certainly not in like the United States. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think I would have fully left. I don't think that camping out at a music festival was ever for me. I just feel like I camped out at a beer fest once and that was more than enough. It's too many different personalities and mm -hmm. it's not like regular camping where like the expectation is to be in nature. So it's, you know, quiet. Um, so I don't think it'll ever really be for me, but you know, we did one day at Outside Lands and you and I like fell apart on the bus ride home. You know, oh like God. I think we got a day maybe two. <laughs> yeah. But I don't see it happening. I mean, especially like, like it shouldn't be like this to hear our King Dave Holmes be like, yeah, you have to find pizza boxes that were still white. Why do they need to still be white, Dave? Oh, because they, that means they are not urine soaked. I'm just oh my like, God. yeah. Between, what the fucking shit is happening over between here? Between his stories and Rob Sheffield from Rolling <laughs> Stone stories. I was like, God damn. <laughs> I mean, this I think shit these two have seen. I think Carson Daly got it the fucking worst. Like he had shit being thrown at, at him. him. 
which by the way, he wasn't interviewed in this doc, but they kept, they put in audio clips from the Ringers eight part podcast series on Woodstock 99. Oh, interesting. So I was like, did they, did he just like call in? No. <laughs> so anytime they had audio in there, it was from that. And I actually want to listen to that podcast series now. Um, now that we've watched this doc and we're talking about it, I'm like, oh, I think if I, you know, have the chance, I will listen to this uh, eight part series. But yeah, the Ringer did that. And I believe that's where they interviewed Carson Daly and got that audio from. Aha. So he wasn't just Skyping in at the last minute. From the Today Show studio. (laughs) I don't know his life. (laughs) Can you imagine he's about to like talk about the latest fall fashions and has just had to talk about some harrowing story out of Woodstock 99 at five in the morning? Like, my God. Well, I mean, I think speaking of uh, other people who... I wish contributed less. Moby. Oh um, God. His whole thing about being like, yeah, you get there and like the vibes are off and like all this shit, but this motherfucker stays. Mm. He watches the show. He gets all fucking up his own ass about like, Oh, it was so upsetting to see women sexually assaulted. Except he didn't fucking say shit. You know who said something? Fucking Dexter ne- from fucking offspring. He was yeah. the only person with any guts to be like, yo, stop being little fucking creeps right now. And then he got like shit thrown at him too. So spare me, Moby, and your fucking terrible. His tattoos are so bad. So what is out happening? Out of control. Out of control. Is he having a midlife crisis? I think uh, he's having a crisis. He's older than that at this point. No, I think it's so, I think it's rich for someone like Moby to like harp on misogyny that was happening there when he very clearly hit on Natalie Portman when she was underage. Like, seriously, dude, like, you're one to talk. And there's a lot of this. It's like, I think revisiting at the time, you know, the men in the music world, not all of them, but a lot of them at the time who made all this, all these comments about things being homophobic and, and misogynist, which I agree, like, there were plenty of acts like, fuck Kid Rock, that guy is the worst. I absolutely hate him. And like, everything he said during that performance. Except, (laughs) except the dude who I'm sadly passed away, though, one of his diary entries, which these diary entries are like, so, so comically ominous to because yes. like from the first moment they're like 72399 today I saw and I was like this dude's dead right like just right. come out and fucking yeah, just say it stop with this like dramatic yeah, yeah but he talks about kid rock in one of his diary entries he's like his performance was sick or whatever he says and he's like he played every single instrument up there and then they cut to the footage of kid rock going up there and like you know hitting a drum for like 3 seconds like, you're like playing every instrument like, the, like scratching the record for 2 seconds <laughs> and like not well either no. so like please stop. But I forgot like what a thing he was because he's such a joke now. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. To think that he had this much sway and like these many people convinced that he was like the shit was very funny. There was a three year period where people took him seriously as an artist. And that is wild to me. Like, I think I've told you the story of the time my high school uh, is was the reason why the FCC fined a local radio station $60,000 because a bunch of girls from my high school called into the local radio station to be cage dancers in a Kid Rock concert and <laughs> stated their credentials. So then the radio DJ proceeded to just like say all sorts of shit about my high school and how slutty the girls were and the principal's daughter caught it on the radio and then, yeah, they find the FCC or the FCC find them. Anyway- Needless to say, Kid Rock was a thing for three years, and that is our our biggest, one of our biggest tragedies as a country, and that's saying a lot. 
Well, since we're talking about Kid Rock, let's just talk about this Saturday lineup really quick because they want to blame all of these other people, but they didn't even realize the promoters want to do that. They didn't even realize what sort of powder keg they're setting up for themselves. So the day that Kid Rock performs, we also have Wyclef Jean, The Counting Crows, Dave Matthews Band, which I love the dead guy was like, yeah, fucking Dave Matthews Band rocks. I'm like, this is, I don't know why that made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) They made a lot of people very happy people that I'm friends with. Love, I, I mean, know. honestly, I, I, these Israelis I used to work with at Meta Cafe were like, yeah, we've seen Dave Matthews Band like 12 times. I'm like, what? They're like, you want to come with us? I'm like, no, you can count me Margo, out. But Dave Matthews are some people's fish. Like, I get it's, it. It's fine. If you grew up on the East Coast, you may have gone to liberal arts school. Like, <laughs> like I... The number of Dave Matthews fans that I know, and also because I grew up in Virginia and he is from Virginia, like it is, people love them. And at one point I like them. I now don't, I don't, you know, I don't actively listen to Dave Matthews Matthews band. band. I'm not going to judge you. I saw him him once uh, in downtown San Francisco grabbing lunch and he's just as short as you thought he is. I honestly, whenever I think of Dave Matthews, I think of a like the bus dropping all that shit in the Chicago. Oh my god! Bridge. I just <laughs> brought that up the other day. Did I say that to you? Yeah. Or did I... <laughs> no, you you didn't say that to me. But I know oh. someone who put it on in her Instagram story. She's like, "What? I never knew this." I'm like, "Yeah, what? I only found that out recently." Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. We were talking. Someone was going. Oh, Todd went to Chicago for something. And we were like, oh, is he going to visit the lake house? I'm like, oh, we should visit the the part on the bridge where Dave Matthews Band dumped a bunch of, like, gray water into the canal. And everybody looked at me and I was like, wait, you guys didn't hear that story? Everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, the people got to know. Now we know. Now we said it. Anyway, so after Dave Matthews Band, though, is Atlantis Morissette, which looked like to be the last peaceful moment. Because then we go into Limp Bizkit, Rage Against the Machine, and Metallica. So they say they don't want to promote like violence or whatever. And I'm not saying that these bands do that. I'm just saying that they are a different type of band where if you've already got an agitated crowd who's ready to fuck shit up, this is the soundtrack that you fuck shit up to. (laughs) I don't know, like, you're Spider-Man pointing at himself in the mirror. Like, I don't really know what you guys thought you were fucking doing. But then they, I guess it's like on, was it on the Sunday that they set fire to everything? And then they had Red Hot Chili Peppers come out and like sing to calm the crowd, but it didn't do anything. Well, they sang, they sang fire by um, Jimi Hendrix. Like that was, so they told the Red Hot Chili Peppers on Sunday. Yeah. And Flea is fully fucking naked. I honestly, this doc, I saw a lot of boobs, but also I saw way too many dicks and I was not happy. (laughs) So many penises. Did not need to see that many. If I wanted to see that, I'd just go to the castro and sit outside. <laughs> you make the choice there. This exactly. was a place I where am choosing. And I was just every and every time like, Ugh, and they were and it was always accompanied by like a terrible, aggressive sunburn. That's right. why I was like, everything yes. about this is upsetting. It was just like pale penis, very red. <laughs> body. Oh God, what an awful <laughs> phrase. Ugh. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, so do we have any other things that, you know, we want to cover on this episode? Anything that we uh, we missed uh, talking about? I think for not really taking notes, we did quite well. I think so, too. 
<laughs> well, we'll definitely come back and probably do a few more recaps as they come out. Uh, whatever they do come out. It says starting in late fall. And the first one's going to be Jagged after um, Woodstock 99. So you know oh, we're going to talk about that. Best believe. But we also have a lot of other things we are going to be talking about because our new season, season six, launches very soon, September 16th to be exact. And if you want to stay on top of that and any other minis that we are recording and releasing, you want to make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast feed. And you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, whether that be iTunes. Well, it's not even iTunes now. It's like Apple Podcasts, I guess. Yeah. Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, etc. You can also keep up with us by following us on Instagram and or Facebook. We're at The Old Millennials Pod. And if you want to keep up with us individually, you can find Emily and I on Twitter. I am at Marg, she wrote. And I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And until next time, we say bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.